Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. There we go. Um, they've got to do that every week now. They've got to make sure to keep me in check, keep me on my toes. It's good to see you. Um, we are in the midst of a series on how to be a righteous remnant. And uh, if you were with us at the retreat, you remember that we started from our base passage, Ezekiel 14. And uh, we looked at what Ezekiel wrote um, about the nation of Israel. And we talked about many, many different things. But one of the things that we recognize about a remnant age, that these are, these are believers, these are holdouts in a time frame or a generation that is defined by a wholehearted, wholesale turning away from God and towards wickedness. Okay, so one of the first things we recognized is the, the parallel, the corollary to our own current age, right? We were trying to define and show ourselves that even today in 2020, we live in a world that would constitute believers being a remnant. In other words, we, as people who say to ourselves, we believe that this is the word of God, it is infallible, it is perfect, and we can know from it that Jesus Christ died and rose again for our sins. The fact that we believe that separates us and makes us unique. And beyond that, um, we even pointed out the fact that we live in an age that we refer to as Laodicea. And so things do look different for Christians today than they did, say, 120 years ago during the Great Awakening in America. We live in a time frame where Christians are particularly hated, and the world is particularly hostile towards us, and it's growing more and more hostile. And if you didn't catch that, that message uh, or those messages from retreat, I want to I recommend that you go back and you listen to those. So that way you have a context for where we're going. Now, Ezekiel 14 tells us of three men, three men who were set apart throughout Scripture as, as particular, particularly righteous in their generation. So it wasn't good enough for them to just be a remnant people, but these men were righteous among all the other people that existed within the age that they lived. And their names get a shout out in Ezekiel chapter 14. And it's super powerful. Um, and, and, and so what we're doing right now is we're taking a moment uh, to look at each of these individuals. We started with Noah at the retreat. We looked at his life and we discussed what made him righteous. And today we're going to start talking about Daniel. And we're going to continue in our short series by discussing the life of Daniel the prophet an exile in the land of Babylon. Now, before we get into it, the thing that distinguishes Daniel almost immediately from Noah and Job is the fact that Daniel was actually a contemporary of Ezekiel, as well as Jeremiah, in fact. So when Ezekiel wrote what we refer to as chapter 14, Daniel was already living in exile in Babylon, and the fame of his righteousness had been spread abroad. I, I want you to understand the gravity of what I'm, what I'm talking about. So to contextualize this for you, Daniel was described as righteous among two other men 
who lived approximately 3,000 to 3,500 years before him. How faithful do you have to be to have a contemporary writer reference you as righteous at the level of Noah and Job? There's something unique about Daniel. And this book is, just, is not just a, a mystery book where we derive from it these incredible prophecies that unlock our entire eschatology. But it's also a story of a man who's unique among, among all men throughout history. The age in which Daniel lived, as is described by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, was a time of great idolatry, which we see that as common among all of these remnant people, is that around them, everywhere they looked, was idolatry, right? And, and we recognize that even today, everywhere that we look uh, is idolatry, People are finding things to worship. They are consumed with worship, in fact. Now, these gods that they worship, they don't look like the gods uh, of, say, of Athens when we were studying Acts or, or the gods of Daniel's day in Babylon. But we are very much in the age of Babylon. The parallels are, are extensive. And we live in a day and age where we worship just about anything that we can get our hands on, we, we worship. Now, our di- idolatry, it might change. The difference is it might change from week to week depending on how we seek to be entertained and fulfilled and comforted. But nonetheless, we worship a pantheon of gods, just like in Babylon. And when we find Daniel, he is a young man, likely just a preteen or early teenager, which makes it even more amazing. What were you doing when you were 13, 14, 15 years old? Right? It it makes the story of men like Timothy and Daniel, men like that, Josiah, it makes makes the story so much more insane, doesn't it? I mean, I had like like just learned how to swim. Right? Like I, I, I was watching Saved by the Bell. You were not. You were watching SpongeBob. I was watching Saved by the Bell. You know, he's dragged away from his family, and he's placed in a world that's completely opposed to God. And as we learn about Daniel, what we're going to come to discover is that Daniel overcame immense adversity in order to remain faithful to his God. And that's what we're going to look at. And that's why this is relevant, and that's why it pertains to us. And I pray, uh, I pray, which we're going to do right now, that you are hearing your story here and that you're being challenged to step out in the way that Daniel does. Okay? No compromise. To be a righteous remnant, we cannot afford to compromise our beliefs. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. Again, we need your help. Um, I've got a lot to cover. I'm freezing cold. I can't feel my hands right now. Um, (laughs) But yeah, God, we need you nonetheless. Uh, We need you to be here. We need to hear from you. And in fact, God, what we need is the sobriety of the retreat to carry over week by week in this series. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be attentive the exact same way that they were when we were down in Arkansas, sitting in that room in that different environment with those long worship sets. We had an opportunity there to, to kind of rile and provoke our hearts to focus on you. And Lord, here, it's a little bit different. We're back home, and we could easily dismiss this message in this series as just being a part of our routine. God forbid. Lord, step in. We need you. We need to hear from you because we, we can't afford 
to be conformed to the image of this world. And it's happening to us day by day as we're in our classrooms and we're among our peers and we're among our family members and we just live a life in Babylon. It's so easy to be appropriated. But we can't afford to live that way. We, we choose to be a righteous remnant and so we need your help and we need your direction and we need, we need your strength and, and Lord, we ourselves need to, to ha- have faith. We need to believe. So help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You're the best, but that's going to get in the way of the mic, I think, I, I fear. Jillian, who knows that Jillian is incredible love, incredibly loving and kind? Thank you. I'm going to pass because I'm, I'm afraid it'll bump the mic, which is why I don't usually wear jackets. This is too much information. Thank you, Jillian. Um, okay, so how to be a righteous remnant. Daniel. So we know here that God is forced to judge his people because they are given over wholly to idolatry. We know from studying God's word and looking at Ezekiel chapter 14 that when a nation turns its back on God in scripture, he is forced into a position where he has to judge his people. And this is where God is drawing hard lines. He's drawing hard lines in the sand. He's calling out his remnant. He's separating the weak from the strong. He's separating the faithful from the perverse. This is what happens when he judges the nations. And again, I highly recommend going back and looking at Ezekiel 14, but what we learn there and what we explained is that in God's process of judgment, his desire is to draw out those who might believe in him more. And when we find Jerusalem in chapter 1 of Daniel, things are just as Jeremiah prophesied. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, it's a plea for the people to turn away from their idolatry and towards God. And what we see through the duration of that story in Jeremiah is that the exile comes and Jeremiah says, hey, look, you're just going to have to live among the Babylonians. You've got 70 years, so you better just, you better just settle in. You've got 70 years of being in, ca- in this captivity. So let's look at at, at, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and start getting some context for what's happening here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. So in the very first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign over Babylon, he makes a successful siege upon Judah and Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar uh, besieged Jerusalem, making himself master over it, leaving Jehoiakim, the current Jewish king, okay, he'd been in office for three years, leaving him as a tributary in, in the land. In other words, he is a king, he remains king, but only in name, and his job is to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, to oversee the people, make sure that taxes get paid. And Jehoiakim did this eight years until he led a rebellion, again, in contradiction to what Jeremiah said, he leads a rebellion that ends in failure and his death. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar descends upon Jerusalem, the city becomes captive to him. They serve him. They pay him. And Israel would have lived under his authority and servitude for those 70 years. Now, as we continue on, um, we see a picture almost immediately of Satan's plan for the nation of Israel, okay? 
So what we're going to look at here is first and foremost a, a, a historical record, but secondarily, it's a metaphor for what's going to happen throughout the remainder of the book. A lot of times when you're reading these Old Testament narratives, you'll see in the first chapter, in the second chapter, is the things that take place there give you foreshadowing for the remainder of the book. Okay? So, so let's look here real quick. So in verse 1, we see that Jerusalem is besieged. In verse 2, it says, And the Lord, came, uh, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. So, Nebuchadnezzar took what, whatever pleased him from Jerusalem, right? The very best of what they had. But he takes these vessels out of the temple. Now, if you were at the All Church Retreat, maybe you're familiar with some of these objects that were used in temple worship. Nebuchadnezzar takes them because they have value. He recognizes their value. And he puts them in the temple of his God. Now these are holy vessels. It refers to them as vessels, right? These are holy vessels which were set apart and employed for the service of God. Nebuchadnezzar took them and placed them as a, as, you know, a statement of victory in and among the treasury of his God. And what this does is it provides us with a clear perspective on the strategy of Satan as it concerns the sifting of believers. Key point number one. A righteous remnant recognizes. Now, I, I say recognizes because if we're going to be righteous, then we also have to be circumspect. Right? We can't be, we can't be naive. We have to recognize that Satan is attacking us. And the very first thing that we see him do here is his objective is to detach you from your people and your purposes. And what I mean by that is that we know from Scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that the Bible likens believers to vessels, right? Vessels of honor, vessels that are set apart, that they're, they're unique for God's using. And what we see here is that when, when the vessels are taken out of the temple and they're put, in, they're put into Marduk's temple, the false god of Babylon, that Satan's trying to, to mingle the worship of the people. He's trying to create a scenario in which the objects that belong to God and the objects that belong to him are not easily differentiated. And I want to tell you that Satan's trying to do the exact same thing with God's vessels, his people, today. Satan wants to take us away from and isolate us from God's people, to separate us from worship, to separate us from this context right here. Look around. Look around at all the vessels in this room. He wants to sift you away from God's people and to rob away your purposes and put you and mingle you among his people and his purposes. That's what Satan wants to do. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to dishonor God and the vessels themselves by placing them among dishonorable things. He wanted to eliminate the distinction between the things of the temple and the things of the world. It's important to note that this is a crucial part of the enemy's attack against remnant people. 
He wants to see them removed from the place of their original purpose and make them vulnerable. So listen, if Satan can attack and take what God intended to be set apart and disguise it among what's common, then he's on the way to undermining what actually makes us unique in the first place. So here's the question for you. Do you know how to be in the world and yet not of the world? Do you know how to do that? Now what I mean by that is that do you know how to live a life where you have to co-mingle with the lost, right? You have to be around lost people all the time, around their culture, around the way that they believe, the way that they act. Can you be around and mingled in among Babylon and yet still be set apart? Do you know how to do that? See, for many of us, when we get around the lost, say, you know, for extended periods of time, we're around the friends that we had in high school, right, for a weekend, or, or, or maybe family members. We get away, it's Christmas, it's the holidays, and you have family members who are lost, and they act a particular way, and just, it doesn't take much for you to find yourself acting and being just like the lost world. Some of us are easily, very easily isolated away from the body and easily mingled in among satanic device. And the question is, and what we're going to ask ourselves as we look at Daniel, do we have the resolve and the faith to say, no, I will not compromise my people and the purpose that God gave me. I will not compromise that. Do we have that kind of resolve? Now, we know that it's not good enough for Satan to just separate you and mingle you among the lost. It's not good enough for him. He wants to indoctrinate you. He wants to change the way you think. Verse 3. Now, what we're going to see here, okay, is that's a picture for us of Satan's attack in Daniel's life as well. Okay, so what we just saw him do with the vessels of the temple, he's going to do with the vesselage of God's people as well. He wants to take them and appropriate them. So look, verse 3. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of, of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar says to his chief over the eunuchs, find the very best of the best in Jerusalem to be my advisors. When, we're, when we see the, the, the phrase Chaldeans, this is a particular sect of individuals in Babylon that were used to advise King Nebuchadnezzar in everything that he did. And he wants to add to that, that group, he wants to add to that particular community young people from Jerusalem that he could teach and train and build up so that they can also support him. They needed to be young, they needed to be children, so that they had time to learn the ways of the Babylonian customs and the gods. They needed to have no blemish, easy to look at. You know, the king doesn't want any uglies in his court. 
right? Only the most handsome. I would have not made the cut, so I would have been in Jerusalem still. They needed to be naturally smart and inquisitive, so there was potential for intellectual growth. Here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the Chaldeans to be his advisors for both scientific and spiritual matters. So here's the next point, key point number two. The righteous remnant recognizes Satan's aim to conform us to the world's image. Do you recognize that? Listen, we are naive if we think God is the only one who has a plan for our lives. We're naive if we believe that. No, Satan also has a plan for your life. He has a plan. The king of this world wants to disciple you for his purposes too. It's not good enough for the enemy to, enemy to separate you and mingle you, but the remnant, listen, the remnant is a threat. The holdouts are a threat to the enemy. You recognize that. This is why we say when someone gets baptized in these waters that they need, they need to be aware and astute of the fact that tomorrow looks different for you. It looks different from you. You're a marked man. The moment you put yourself into that water and declare your purposes belong to God because Satan has a plan for you as well. And that's to defraud the name of Christ and to make you his disciple. You're not somehow excluded from those purposes just because you've called upon Christ. In fact, it's so much better. It's so much better for Satan if he's got a horde of hypocrites at his disposal. It works to his advantage. The remnant is absolutely a threat, and he's not going to stop until he makes the lost or makes you look like the lost world around you. He's not going to stop. So what we see here, as we're introduced to Daniel and his friends, is a staunch rebellion against this agenda. Daniel is satisfied in God and will not find that satisfaction in any other identity. Psalm 17, 15 is a great description of what we see here. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Daniel's satisfaction was being like his God. And so despite the enemy's attack, we have to we have to be determined that we will be conformed to Christ's image, not Satan's. Verse 5. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now we're tempted right here to say to ourselves, wow, that's actually pretty generous. That's pretty generous of the king to provide them with food from his very own table. Man, that's good of him because we know that in most situations like this, I don't, you don't have to read very many history books, that when someone conquers a land, people in that land don't generally get taken care of very well. They don't get to eat from the king's table. Instead of slavery, they got scholarships. And instead of hunger and scraps of food, 
These men were given a generous portion of the king's own meat. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. First and foremost, these meats would have not fallen under Mosaic law. So to eat the way that the heathen did would have, would have been disobedient to the, to the law of Moses that had been handed down to Daniel and his people. And secondly, this meat was also most likely sacrificed to Marduk, the sun god. And so not only that, this food would have been accursed to the Jewish people. So, so here's, here's Daniel's first dilemma. Okay, but it goes, it goes beyond this. Verse 6. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. These men were given new names. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe your name, maybe your parents gave you a name just because they thought it was cute and it was popular at the time. Anybody, who, who, where are the Madisons at in the house? Ma- Madison, I feel like, when I was teaching high school, I, I had to, every Madison and Madly, Madeline and Maddie all that came out of the 2000s, I mean, I could never keep them straight. So if you were my student and you have the name Maddie, I want to apologize now because there were so many of them. So many of us got, get names, Brandon. I, like, it was popular in 1982 to name your kid Brandon, I guess. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. But when we talk about Old Testament names, we know that names mean something. Now check this out. I want you to understand that all of the names of our righteous remnant, the guys that we're studying, are very, very important to to what we're looking at here. Noah's name meant rest. I mean, one man, eight billion people, the only righteous man in the entire world, that doesn't sound very restful to me. Okay, but the rest came in the grace of God, in the building of a ship, that would carry him from judgment. Noah, a man of rest, righteous, a righteous remnant in his age. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Pretty powerful. Now, Nebuchadnezzar understood this, and so what he wanted to do was to strip these men of their identity and give them new names, give them new identities. So he didn't want to just taint them with the cursed meat. He wanted to change them from the inside out. He wanted to change the concept of who they were. And so he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. And this name means Prince of Bel, which Bel is another name for Marduk, the sun god. So you can see Satan at work here. Isolating Daniel changing his name and providing him with the comfort of food from the world's finest table. See, the dilemma that Daniel faces, though, is that in order to become who they wanted him to become, he's going to have to deny the identity that God gave him and disobey the purposes that God gave him. So here's the question for you. What are you willing to do to get along with the world? 
What are you willing to do to get along with the world? Now, in order to, to boil that down a little bit, I want you to think about the different contexts that you find yourself in, the different authorities that are in your life, the different forms of peer pressure that you face from day to day, whether in the classroom setting or among your family or people that you're exposed to. You know, those people have agendas for you. Now, they're not going to overtly say, well, I am, I'm here to change your name and to make you eat of the, the meat of Marduk. Your professors aren't saying that. But they're absolutely cogs in a wheel that seek to conform you to the world's image. And the question is, when the pressures of the world come up against you, and the world seeks to sift and appropriate you, are you going to do the things that help you get along from day to day, to help you blend in just among all the common people in your classroom, and the people on the street, and the people you find yourself with at the coffee shop? Are you, are you seeking to blend in with those people, to go along to get along, or are you trying to make yourself distinct? How far are you willing to go to avoid suffering? What will you do when everything around you, just like Daniel, seems lost? And the tempter knocks on your door, shows up to your house, and offers you something that you can't refuse. I mean, how does Daniel refuse this? I mean, obviously he has no choice but to be in Babylon. He has no choice but to be there, right? You feel the same way? I mean, here we are. America, 2020, we have no choice but to be here. This is where we're at. But the question is, are you going to allow yourself to get whisked away in the tide? And when everything seems lost and you get, you get put in a position where you, get, you feel like you're cornered, Daniel had to have felt that way, don't you agree? And, this, and Satan makes an offer to you in the form of finances, in the form of a relationship, in the form of something that you've always dreamed of having. And he brings that to you. And you feel like this is the only way out. What are you going to do? See, they, they may have called him Belteshazzar, but at his heart, God was always going to be his judge. Always. And he's always going to be our judge too. He's watching. Verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with, nor with the wine that he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the, of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel refuses to partake of the king's meat. Key point number three. The righteous remnant is purposed not to compromise. It's very, very simple. But honestly, it's very difficult to live. And I feel like, you, you know, the, for me, one of the, the, the most clear illustrations right now that I can see in our ministry is the way that the Kansas City Art Institute has been treating the students. I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult to navigate what the heck's going on on campus, right? And it's, it's going to be real easy for you 
to fall under the pressure of your peers and what your teachers are saying. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. Don't allow yourself to compromise for convenience sake. See, the righteous remnant, remnant will not compromise for convenience sake. They won't. They won't do it. The righteous remnant, they're not going to compromise despite pressure from authority. I said it. There are pressures from authorities in our lives. People who don't have our best intentions in mind, our spiritual well-being in mind. The righteous remnant won't compromise for the sake of fitting in. And yet, many of us find ourselves every day just trying to fit in. Does that, ask yourself, are you a righteous remnant? The righteous remnant won't compromise despite the desire to retain a reputation. I don't, I don't mean to call Michael out, but, but Michael's made some huge decisions over the last year. Things that, that maybe you can ask him about at some point. Things that affected his reputation in the eyes of his peers. And this is the first time I'm acknowledging it, but, but he chose not to compromise because he knows that a righteous remnant won't. The righteous remnant won't compromise despite his own, listen, own physical well-being. And what we're saying here is that if Daniel refuses to eat this meat, the potential of him dying because he does not get sustenance that he needs is absolutely a potential. That could happen. He doesn't care. He's willing to put even his own body at risk. Psalms 84.10, this is what he knows. This is what Daniel knows that we ought to know. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the, the tents of wickedness. Psalm 37.16, a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Do you believe that? See, many of us, many of us are willing to stop coming to church just because of a new job. And how many of us can honestly say, say that we would be willing to obey God even if it might cost us our life? See, that type of stance takes a faith that many of us just don't have. If we're honest with ourselves, that's a type of faith that many of us are completely unfamiliar with. Let me suggest that if we're going to survive a world that is actively trying to assimilate Christians, that the only way to truly live is to live ready to die. To live as though you're already dead. It's the, it's the only way to survive it. I don't belong to me. And if I'm already dead, then whatever befalls me is just completely fine. The tempter has nothing on me. Are you guys, are you guys with me this morning? I don't, I, I'm not sure. 
maybe when I prayed for sobriety, I, you guys are like, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe this is heavy for you. Listen to me. This is, this is normal Christian life, folks. This is what Christians are supposed to look like. I don't, I mean, I don't care where you're coming from or what context in terms of Christian exposure. I don't know where, what churches you grew up in or places that you came from, but listen to me. This is normal Christian life. Verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. He had a good, he had a good reputation and uh, friendship with uh, the chief of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed you meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? In other words, he doesn't want you to look gaunt and like skinny and, you know, pasty and frail, right? Like he wants to see you looking, looking the way he wants you to look, strong and, and ready. So I don't know if I'm okay with this idea of you not eating. Then shall ye make me endangered, my head, to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenance be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. Okay, do you understand what's happening here? So what he says is, just give us the pulse, give us the water, give us the most base food to eat. We don't want the king's meat, just give us that. And then after 10 days, we, according to your logic, should be emaciated, should be thin, should be sickly looking. But I want you to compare us to the countenance of those you're giving the, meat, uh, the king's meat to. And then make your comparison. Key point number four, the righteous remnant's prosperity is not contingent on worldly provisions. The righteous remnant's prosperity is not contingent on worldly provisions. Now, many of us know principally that the prosperity gospel is a false and wicked teaching. But here's the problem. Practically, day to day in our lives, we think God wants us to have everything we ever dreamed for. So you might doctrinally, you might not ascribe to prosperity gospel. But practically, the way that you live, the way that you act, the way that you function you think God wants you to have everything that you ever dreamed of. And that's just not so, Christian. See, many of us are convinced that our success is dependent on whether or not we have achieved all of our worldly goals and ambitions. And we might not acknowledge it, but we're going, we're going to the king's table for a handout. That's what we're doing. We don't even know we're doing it. But we're going to the king's table for a handout. The world has stuff to offer us. And the moment we believe that the prosperity and personal well-being of our lives is reliant on what the world is offering is the moment that we have compromised. See, we don't need what the world offers us. We don't need their companionship. We don't need their colleges. We don't need their careers. We don't need their collaboration. We don't need their conceptual framework. We need Christ. That's what we need. The only good life is a life with Christ. And he's going to give us everything we need. 
And he will define what prosperity is. And he will give the righteous remnant exactly what they need. His provision is sufficient. Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Man, Daniel knew that long before Matthew penned those words. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So what Daniel understood was exactly what Paul was preaching to the Athens when we studied chapter 17. It's the exact same thing. Look, grace is right there. You don't need anything else. All you need to do is reach out and grab hold and he will get you through. You don't need worldly provisions. You don't need the false gods and what they have to offer you. You don't need the king's meat. You don't need it. You need to cling to his every word. That's what you need. That is our sustenance. So the prince of the eunuch agrees. It says, so he consented to them in this matter and proved them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and, and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. It worked so well that everybody, everybody had to do as Daniel did. See, these men found prosperity and provision at the table of the true king. I mean, Daniel's just different, isn't he? Verse 17. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he, he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding, the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in, in all his realm. And Daniel continued even under the first year of King Cyrus. Now here's the key point. The righteous remnant finds that God gives wisdom greater than the world offers. God's wisdom is better. And that is, the, that is the point. That's the point to summarize all the points. God's wisdom is better. His ways are better. His table is better. And in his presence and in, 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 in being with him in intimate relationship, all the satisfaction that you could ever need will be there. You'll find it. And you will discover in that place that the world really has nothing to offer and you have no reason to compromise one bit As we've noticed time and time again, Christians are finding today their wisdom source in the world's resources. Their knowledge set is de derived from their classroom or at the king's table. But what if, people, what if people took note of you, not because your achievements or how congenial you are, 
but because you have clearly spent time with your God. When they look at you, when they converse with you, when they engage with you, they know that there's something different about you. Proverbs 15.33 says this, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. See, what we learned about Daniel today is that he was a righteous remnant because he was unwilling to compromise his obedience to God. Now, I want to ask this. as In closing, the worship team can kind of come up. We've run out of time. But there's a, there's, a, there's a couple questions I want to put on the table. And the first question is this. Have you found yourself compromising lately? Like in the context that you find yourself in, when you, when you find yourself mingled among worldly people, do you find yourself compromising in the way that you act, the way that you speak, in what you believe, and what you're willing to do? And if you have been, then, then it's time to repent today. Like, let's deal with that, because you can't afford to be conformed to the image of the world. Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Is he the lover of your soul or not? Who are you? Whose identity do you carry? We also learn that Daniel, uh, from Daniel that, that the wisdom of God is greater than men. Now, if you believe that, then that means it's time for you to seek Christ's face and to glean your wisdom from him. And so I want to put this on the table. There are some of you in this room that recognize that this is now your church home. You've been attending for a few weeks, a few months. This is your church home. What are the decisions that you need to make in order to grow in your knowledge and wisdom of who God is? Do you need to quit something? Do you need to decide that actually you need to be at Bible study more consistently? You need to join a Bible study? Maybe some of you need to decide right now that you want to be discipled. Listen, I believe, I don't know whether I made the argument well at retreat or not, but I do believe that these are the last days. And I believe Jesus Christ is coming soon. And at his appearance, you will stand judged by him. And will he find you compromised? Or will he find you standing in his wisdom? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we need you as we've, we've always needed you. Uh, Lord, you have done so much for us. And, uh, and Lord, we, we want to find our peace and rest in you. We want to find ourselves humble before you because we honestly do believe that one day with you is better than thousands in fame and power and wealth in the midst of this world. Lord, I, I want to preserve my soul before you and I don't want to fall prey to satanic device and I don't want to fall prey to the conformity of this world and so Lord I need you to intervene and I need you to do that on all of our behalf Lord show us what it means to commit ourselves to you and to find our resource our sustenance our wisdom our knowledge our purpose our identity in you and you alone help us help us to make the decisions that get us there today in Jesus name amen today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, 
For service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.liv.